1: This is Film School. Grab your popcorn, class is about to begin. 2022 has been an amazing year for the horror genre, and I'm so excited to talk to my guest, Brian Sal, the cinematographer for Christmas, Bloody Christmas, which hits shutter and select theaters, as of today, the day of this release, December 9th, 2022. So if you're listening to this episode on that date, be sure to head over to Shutter or to your nearest movie theater that happens to be playing it and check it out for yourself. Christmas Bloody Christmas is a 16 millimeter horror slasher featuring a killer robot, Santa. If you just heard the words killer, robot, and Santa put together and it sparked your interest, this is definitely a movie for you. Go check it out and enjoy my conversation with Brian Sowell. I'm really excited to talk about Christmas, Bloody Christmas, and I'm sure we'll spend a good portion of our conversation doing just that. But I want to get to know the man behind the camera. Let me know a little bit about childhood Brian. What got you first interested in movies? What was that spark for you?
0: It was uh, mostly my dad was a photographer. And I grew up in his studio. He had a very, we well, I'm from a pretty small town. So hmm. the possibility of working on movies was never possible. I just never saw that as a thing I would do. Yeah. But he had a studio and this was back pre-digital. So I spent a lot of time in the dark room or just on his, he had a little bitty, a little bitty shop. So I spent a lot of time there. So I understood the photographic process and I liked the weirdo stuff that he would do. And then, and I think back then I saw The Shining when I was a kid. I wasn't supposed to be watching it. I was in my room and I realized I could see the TV through the door. Yeah. So I sat there and watched it and I just got, I was just mesmerized. Hmm. And I think that was a intro into creepy movies. But then I yeah. saw The Velvet, I think when I was graduating high school or something like that. And I was like, what the hell is this? I was like, I didn't know that these movies were made because they didn't show them in my hometown. Yeah. And when I saw that, I was like, how do I get involved? How do I do things like this? Like I have a an understanding of how cameras and pictures work. Mm. I don't know anything else about it. So that was the beginning. And then I just started trying to find a place to go to school to learn things or meet other people that were doing it. But there there weren't really any other people in my hometown. Yeah. So I found a school and... Then just started the trial and error of learning where I fit.
1: It's interesting mentioning The Shining because Kubrick started doing photography. You got your door opened through photography first. How do you think starting in the still world affected your view of actually shooting like motion picture, like going from focused on composition, one single shot to 24 of those every second?
0: I think a lot of it is composition because you're thinking about one frame and you're not thinking about it. everything is important and but I do think that's because you start looking like when you look at a photograph you're really breaking down everything in that photograph from the grain structure and framing and depth of field and contrast and I think having had that around and just thinking about the nitty-gritty of an image being put onto uh, onto film in the process of developing it and all of those things just the technicalities of it I think is what got me excited about the process of yeah. doing it. And then also just as far as composition goes and really looking at them, because I think there's a lot of times it's just, especially when you're making lower budget things and it's a rush, like it's just, you need to get a shot to, to, to fill in a gap between two other shots and right. the one, one of the other ones are the important one and the other one are just necessary to tell the story. Yeah. And I think when you start looking at every single frame as being equally as important, sometimes you don't need as many frames as you thought. And the one thing that you have is already told that story, or sometimes you need more. It really just depends on the filmmaker. But right. maybe that's, I hadn't really answered that question before, but I guess maybe that's what it is.
1: I know you mentioned the idea of doing this for a living didn't cross your mind to like high school. And then it was like, how do I do this for a living? When's the first time that you actually monetize this ability or found yourself in a position where hey I just made some money doing what I actually like doing.
0: I got to film in a convoluted sort of way from North Florida and there was a hurricane that came through and just decimated everything. So I was trying to figure out how to just pay my bills and also figure out how to get where I was going and find a school because I just it was so new to me at the time. Yeah. Um and I ended up getting this weird job working at a detox center overnight from 12 to eight in the morning admitting patients which i've never i don't have any sort of medical or healthcare background it was just like putting people in jobs because everybody was out of work and i was 18 or 19 at the time and i met this nurse and her husband went to different colleges around cal or around florida just to evaluate them and i told her what i wanted to do and so my husband just went to this place in orlando and they had this it's not full cell they have a community college there that had a film program Mm. they get very high ratings supposed to be a good school and I got there, but their prerequisite for film was theater. And I've never done that. Mm-hmm. So I took, you have to take like basic stagecraft, like building flat, yeah. props, some wardrobe, makeup, like all these like little bitty nuggets of all the different areas of theater. Uh, and I really got into that. And I realized their film program felt to me at the time more like a training ground for PAs than it did for training mm-hmm. ground to be a, like maybe a higher position. Yeah. Uh, So I decided that I like theater. So I finished that. So I did that for a few years before. And just through that and through people that I had worked with in theater, I met a guy who was working on a music video. That music video I went on as an electrician and met a gaffer. And it was this boy band in Orlando. And it was horrible, but it was really eye-opening because the gaffer was just so knowledgeable and so nice. And he just... We clicked right away and he grew up listening to punk rock and I knew a bunch of that stuff. And so we just started talking and hanging out on set. And he invited me to go and work on a reenactment for America's Most Wanted when that was probably very at the end of its original run. And then after that, it sparked that interest in me again. I was like, where can I go to get the education that I want? And I ended up going up to Chicago and working. So that's when I first got paid. Then I took a step back, went back to school, was still doing theater stuff, but then came back to it as a camera assistant and an electrician later.
1: Do you think film school is an essential for people? Or do you think it's something where knowing what you know now, you would have just tried to learn by doing? Yeah, I would just
0: learn by doing. I think as something, a lesson that I'm still constantly reminding myself of is whatever it is you want to be, you're ready to do it. You just go do it. You're going to be bad at it. Yeah. make a lot of mistakes, but at least you'll be on the path to that thing. The old, I'm not that there's anything wrong with the other way either. Like I always think about this. I always wonder if my student loans and time and school were wasted, but I don't think they were because I went to school with amazingly talented guys that all got me to where I'm at and that I learned right. from by being around them. They're all shooting TV shows and movies now like huge ones. And they're guys that I was spending my weekends with making student films. So I don't know that I would give that up, but I also wish I didn't have the student loan that went along with my years sure. too. I think if you wanna if you want to direct, you should be getting a camera and going out every weekend and directing something. Or if you want to be a DP, you find you just start shooting things or you find someone who wants to tell a story, no matter what that story is, and mm-hmm. practice makes perfect. And people start knowing you as that thing that you want to be, and then you become it
1: what's the biggest thing that you think film school didn't prepare you for going and stepping onto an actual set or on an actual project? What's the biggest thing where you go, Oh, there's nobody told me this is, <laughs> this is how it's going to be, or I should have been more prepared for this.
0: Um, maybe the interpersonal workings of a set. Everybody knows you're supposed to be nice. Just don't be a jerk to people. But I just didn't realize how close knit it was like, uh, like I always saw the word networking as a really phony, nasty thing. I was like, yeah. I don't, if I don't like that guy, I'm not going to go talk to him. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do that. Um, or I don't want to talk to someone just to get something out of them or get something from them. And then I realized shortly, once I started really working, that's not really what it was. It's kind of like the gaffer that I met. Like we had common interest and we liked this, a lot of the same stuff. And we had a talking point and things that we liked as well as the job we were doing. And that's kind of how I got into Christmas Bloody Christmas is I met josh on set because i had Mm -hmm. an arrest sticker on my camera cart and we just started talking and you realize oh we have a lot of things in common and we're all working really hard to get where we want to be and it's just mutual mutually beneficial and also a lot of fun to hang out together yeah yeah. i just didn't see that as being as huge a factor as it would be later on
1: let's talk a little bit about christmas buddy christmas because obviously that's uh as of the time of this release is already out on shutter, certain theaters and things. How did that project come together initially? And how'd you end up involved with it?
0: I know Joe had pitched for, I think it was a silent night, deadly night remake or sequel or something like that. And they felt like it was too different hmm. from the originals. I don't know all the particulars, but it was basically something like that. So he was looking, he's like, it's my own thing. So I'll make it. Yeah. And he found people to help him do that. And, We've just, I've just known Josh and Joe for a a long time and we hadn't worked in the past, but we've been friends for a long time. And he just called and asked me if I was interested. And so he sent me the script and told me a little bit about what he was doing. And I was totally down to do it. I mean, it was a robot Santa movie where he just slaughters the whole town and it's being shot on film. And the thing Joe's very good about is also budgeting for the appropriate amount of shoot days that you need to actually make a movie. I would say my past experience with this and a lot of other, uh, just a lot of low budget or mid budget films is they think they can do it in 15 days. And the problem is they do, they'll do it in 15 days, but it's not good or it's severely flawed because of the amount of time they allotted to make the thing that they're trying to make. And joe doesn't do that so our shooting schedule we ended up having to cut a few days but it still started out at a 45 day schedule or something which is huge for a a movie that's not a five million dollar movie right um so that was the other attractive part so anyway i was like yeah i was totally down we're shooting on location they started sending me pictures of because they were already up there or the art department and i think josh was already up there and they were sending me pictures of locations and i was just trying to get prepped here in LA before I went up and that's how it all started.
1: Yeah. It, that's crazy. W- was the idea of shooting on film the, that was there before you were even on board? Like that was a goal. Was that just for the aesthetic and keep making it feel like a kind of seventies, more grindhouse aesthetic or what was the motivation there?
0: No, I don't think time period is really ever factored into the decision for film. Like it, mm. it's not meant to be a throwback. I don't think for me, it's not for Joe, the, Joe and I just became friends. One of the things that we bonded over initially is just his love of film and wanting to shoot on 16. So we had a lot of conversations, like before he did Bliss, about shooting on 16 and just the cameras and stuff like that. And we just both really liked that that aesthetic and also just the machinery and, and the process of shooting on film and the way the grain. Joe is obsessed with film grain. So that was really the, the decision. I, I, I don't think that it was story driven. I think he can shoot film for every movie. And the only thing that might be different is going from 16 to 35 if the budget allowed it.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I have to imagine that up the budget quite a bit. Like what's, you mentioned like a 45, 45 day shooting schedule, you're shooting on film and everybody knows when you start shooting film, like every time you roll the camera, you're just (laughs) burning money. Like money's just going like, how did that affect the approach day to day? with shooting versus if you had a couple of reds and you're going out and filming, you can record as much as you want. How did that change the actual production approach?
0: Uh, I was surprised. It honestly didn't really change that much. We actually came in under what our budget for film allotment was. And I don't, if we wanted to shoot it, we shot it. We didn't ever not shoot because we were afraid of burning too much film. But having said that too, like... We all knew what exactly what we were going to get. Joe's very good about knowing the shots he needs. We didn't do a lot of redundant stuff. The only time that it felt a little bit redundant was on some of the action scenes. And you just have to have that coverage to to be able yeah. to keep momentum up. And there's a specific, there's a couple of specific spots where like you just needed more parts and pieces. So we were shooting things a lot more than I'd anticipated yeah. But once we were there, it made sense to get the other pieces, right. but it, I can't really speak to the exact cost of all of that stuff. Sure. I don't remember what it was, yeah. but I just know I, if I was like, let's shoot this, there was, okay, let's do it. There was never yeah. like being overly precious about the film stock.
1: Right. 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 Yeah. It's wild to me. Like everything I've read so far about it. One, the fact, like when I f- first started watching the movie, I was like, where did they shoot this? Cause I'm thinking like, there's no way they actually shot in a real town for this. <laughs> then I start reading interviews with Joe and it's, no, they shut down a town for us and we shot and we pretty much, they let's do whatever we wanted. Was that experience like all pretty smooth? How did that even, how that even come together to be able to do the things you guys did in an actual, <laughs> an actual town? They did give us a lot. I
0: did. I don't remember it being always that smooth though, that we had. <laughs> There were moments we started in, I don't know how much people know about this already, but we started up North in a small town and it was, it was pretty easy because it was, we needed two houses that were next door to each other. They found these two houses. And for the most part, the community around us was pretty supportive, even though we were shooting overnights for every single night of the movie, which a lot of times in neighborhoods does not go over well when you're shining a light into someone's bedroom. We had one instance where a guy came over and he was very mad. Yeah, (laughs) But then Josh talked to him and showed him around the set and gave him some attention and he was better. And then he went away. When we moved to Placerville, where we had the whole main street to shoot on, it really did feel like a backlot sometimes because after 10 o'clock nobody was out there the streets were just totally vacant for the most part you might get a random straggler that would come through but we would just move we would just get them let them pass and then we would pick up where we left off yeah but we were like racing the ambulance up and down that street the stunt yeah. driver was fish telling it around corners like we were just doing things and we did have a lockup we had cops that would come in and when we were yeah. doing the ambulance stuff but still they didn't really have a whole lot to do because they're just it was such a small quiet town
1: Right,
0: uh, We did have a little bit of pushback, though, because we had fake snow everywhere all the time. And it turned towards, I think they were just getting annoyed with us because we were there for so long. Yeah. But towards the end, I know a lot of the PAs and Josh were out there cleaning up snow each morning as the sun's coming up to keep the town from being pissed at us because we were making a mess. Even though all of it was like it washed away as soon as it rained or you hosed down with water, it would usually just wash away. Right. But I remember that being the point of contention for a little while.
1: Yeah. One thing I really liked about the film was how colorful it is. And something that has always bothered me with Christmas, Christmas movies in general, but especially Christmas horrors, it tends to feel very like dull and cold. And like, it tends to play into that, like those weather elements. Like I had this issue, even watching the Grinch, like the newer Grinch movie. And it's like, the movie has all these beautiful sets and then it just feels washed out and cold. And then this movie feels almost like Argento. There's reds and blues, like painting every single wall. Like when did you bring a lot of that intention into it to be like, oh, it's going to be really colorful. Like, because it does feel decidedly different than even like the Silent Night, Deadly Nights or Black Christmas or like all of the Christmas horror films that we think about traditionally.
0: I mean, I like that stuff and I've experimented a lot with color in the past, but no that's really joe's doing that's what he wanted to have and uh, i think a lot of my responsibility on set is to get into the head of the director that i'm working with to try to figure out what they want partly to service the film that they're trying to make but also just to make it give us a shorthand so we're not figuring it out every day so joe and i spent a lot of time talking about brightness levels and color and how things work so i could understand what he wanted so once we got into shooting, it, it wasn't a back and forth all the time. I wouldn't have to ask questions or get an opinion on something. I could just do it. know feeling confident mm-hmm. was going to be cool with it. And once we got going, I think that we achieved that because it was, it was still a conversation. He and I would always talk about what we were going to do, yeah. but um, we just leaned into it and, and a lot of times we kind of would come up and find things that we didn't know we were gonna do, like in the toy store. We did, we put in some lights that I hadn't planned to use. I didn't even know how to use them. And I don't know, it, it, it was just, it was a nice surprise cause you kept trying to push it. The thing that was cool about Joe is, is like being able to push what the visual is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the PlayStation was another. Joe likes shooting on film and he likes film cameras. And I just thought it would be cool to use tungsten and instead of a lot of LEDs. We had LEDs and we had all the modern lights, i brought a bunch of park hands just because i think park hands are fun to work with and we have these old magic gadgets which you would you used to use for flame and mm-hmm. flicker gags and stuff like that they're not really used as much anymore because most heads lights have been built into them yeah which is, but so when we did the fire station or when we did the police station the whole there there were larger lights outside but a lot of the light that's pushing in from the fire is all just par cans, which are cans for $5 a piece. And we had a yes. flicker, little flicker boxes. So they're all doing things with different color gels on them. It's the lowest lo-fi thing possible. And Joe was stoked on it because he he likes
1: more analog and traditional tools. Yeah. yeah. What interviewed Elliot Rocket, who's been working with Ty West for a little while. And he mentioned a lot of what you just mentioned, which is finding someone that you can have a relationship where you don't have to ask everything. Like you can have that symbiotic relationship where you know how they're going to think about it. Is that something that's rare? Is this like a special thing when it does happen with a director? Or is it something you feel is you shouldn't be working together. If that's not there,
0: the goal is always to try to get there, (laughs) right? Whether you agree with it or not, the goal is to try to get there because just for the workflow for the day, because you're like you're lighting a set, but you're also thinking about two sets down the road too. And you're just Mm -hmm. trying to figure out, make sure that you're using your time efficiently. And so you have the most shooting time and less debating time. And Joe and I, uh, just like a lot of the same stuff. So it's easy for he and I, I've worked with other, have uh, another director that I work with a lot, Jaron. he and I work really well together and they're very different directors, but we've developed a language. So I know how to get to where they want to go. I would say that's not the case all the time. There's sometimes yeah. where the director wants to do something. I just cannot wrap my head why they want to do it that way. Yeah. So I do a version of it and I don't know that it's always a, exactly what they wanted, but it's what I felt they wanted. So that yeah. can be frustrating, yeah. but I would say that that's been pretty rare. A lot of the it's also going back to just doing something a lot. I spent a lot of time talking to directors to figure out what they want and trying to understand why and where that gets us and where we need to go from there so things are smooth.
1: When it comes to the whys, and you mentioned a couple of inspiration pieces, but as you're planning for this project, what were some of the big kind of visual inspirations you were looking at as you were trying to plan out how the movie was going to look? Were there any? Films or any projects that the two of you were looking at going, okay, we want to emulate this or we want the same feel we get watching this project.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. I love movies and try to watch them a lot. Joe is just a, a, an encyclopedia of film. Mm. And so we watched quite a bit. Most of it was stuff that was shot on 16. So, cause we were just really looking at grain and color and yeah. how they dealt with the film stock and the image after, after post. And so we looked at the runaways. We looked at hardware. Hardware was a big mm. one. We looked at Terminator. Terminator was a little bit different. I think it was more for framing purposes yeah. and also just how they dealt with the robot and how they, in the action scenes. And yeah. also the night scenes, night exteriors for that as well. It was a much bigger movie, but it wasn't really that big. Yeah. And they made it. Up well, the
1: first there. one definitely yeah. wasn't huge. Yeah.
0: So like when he shows up and he beats up the punk rockers, the mm-hmm. conservatory, like all that stuff is stuff that we were looking at. Hardware, like I said, was a pretty big one. I watched that. I had already seen hardware and Dust Devil, but I went back and watched it a couple more times. I think those were Halloween 2. Um, hmm. The Rob Zombie one, because it was also shot on 16. Okay. And, Which was nice because it was shot by Brandon Trouse and I've worked with Brandon before. So it's nice. I and I it was funny. I didn't think to reach out to him about it. We I just had was pulling stills and putting images together. And I like to just have these images so I can move them around and see what is it that that draws my eye to a specific image or a frame grab from a film. And so I had some from Halloween too. And then I went away for something. I came back and I just went out to meet a friend and I ran into Brandon when I was out one day and we started talking and I didn't don't me to something. So later it's like, Oh, yeah, Brandon, I forgot to tell you, we did this. And I used, I pulled a lot of stills from your movie yeah. to look at just for lighting purposes and just reference on our night exteriors. Yeah. And I sent it to him. And it's amazing when, The references that you have from the movies that you're using as inspiration, you know the people and they can comment on the photos that you sent to them. So he, I sent it to him. He goes, oh, yeah, we just used two 2Ks behind the truck when we did that. And I was like, that's how we did it, too. Yeah. So... It was pretty exciting to have those relationships, which I mean, goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast.
1: Yeah, ter- Terminator is like the thing everybody, I think it's, I've been saying like the killer robot Santa's the hook of the movie. If you hear that and you go, I'm in, this is a movie you'll probably like. If you hear that and go, oh, that sounds dumb. It's a very clear type of movie for, I think a clear type of audience. Like, And so I think Terminator keeps getting thrown in the conversation quite a bit, but visually there's not, too much crossover. Like you said, outside of maybe some of the way you frame our main villain, like it's shot in that way. But Halloween two is an interesting one. I'm a huge fan of Rob Zombie's Halloween two. It might be, depending on the day you asked me, it might be my favorite Halloween movie. What were some of the big pieces you pulled from that? Was it more the stuff in the house? Like when, like near the end of the movie, was it anything from the hospital scene? What were you pulling from specifically?
0: For me, a hospital was a little bit of it because of our police station. Yeah. And a lot of it, I was looking at night exteriors because we have so much of him stalking down roads, into a house, being on Main Street, ambulance lights and cop lights. That was a big one. And I was a little bit nervous about some of these because we had so little fill. Like we were, the lights that you see in the frame are the lights that are lighting the set sometimes. Yeah, right. And I... Was really looking at that. A lot of times, when things are massively underexposed, you start seeing it. You start seeing the grain really start popping Mm -hmm. in an inconsistent way. Like Joe loves grain. I think Joe would underexpose everything and print it up if he could get more grain because he loves it. But my concern was just that grain would be consistent and even, so Mm -hmm. your eye was never like, "Oh, why is it all grainy now when it wasn't once?" Yeah. So that was my big concern. And looking at all those movies was partly just looking at how they dealt with windows, some brightness levels, and then also how they dealt with their night exteriors and where were they lighting from. These are all pretty big movies, but they're not massive movies. They're not huge movies. So you can look and go, where were the lights for this night exterior? They're shooting on the same film stock that we were shooting on, same format. So I wanted to just see, were they over, were they having to pump a bunch of light in there to get a proper exposure? Or was it grainy? I was just, that was my, that was what we were looking
1: at. Yeah. I have to imagine like main street and I could be wrong. So, and I want to know if I am like main street, I would imagine would be one of the easier locations to shoot as far as making it look visually interesting, getting it to be lit and you can pump a lot more light in the shots. Like in those in between transition periods where you're in the woods or walking down this empty street making that look natural but also where you can see cuz naturally you it would be pitch black in some of the areas he's walking what was more challenging and why and was it kind of those areas where there isn't any of those like flickering lights in the background and all the color being shot in everywhere
0: Uh, Yeah, it is. It it was easier. But my concern was when you deal with a lot of like small little bitty lights, Mm. I was afraid you have we would have a very dark image with just a lot of little spots all over the place. Yeah. And there are some ambient lights in on that street lights and stuff like that. But uh, there were a lot of really dark pockets. So when you watch the movie and they're walking down Main Street, there were tons of our movie lights hidden in corridors Mm. it might be dark for a second but then they would be picked back up as they go next to the next building and i don't have a problem i like the darkness but i think that it needs to ebb and flow and feel organic as they're going and never have pockets that are dark for too long cuz then mm. you're just you're looking at christmas lights and you're not looking at the actors right so we did that but it was it was just we had a light that was walking with them as well we, we had some movie lights in, but it really wasn't a lot. If you think about the two houses at the beginning that are or the two houses that are side by side, those were much more lit. Yeah. Um, it was because we had to, there was just no, there was nothing there. There was no street lights. There was a lot of, one house has the massive amount of Christmas lights. The guy who's real into Christmas, the other house had nothing. So we had lights hidden behind the houses and we were using these things called tubes of death, which are just big tubes that pump fog yeah. into the set in and around the set. And part of my plan was to light the fog because the light and the fog blooms. And then also you have a background when you used to just have nothing back. So we did that. Yeah. So that, and that, that location also was just difficult because it was up a hill and then once you got to the top of the hill, the house is set on hills. So it's just, it's like when I was thinking about this earlier, it's kind of like standing on the desert and wind all day, you're not mm-hmm. doing much, but wind just beats you up and you feel tired. Right. Standing on uneven ground all day. Right. You just feel exhausted from standing on uneven ground. And that location was like that. And it was a lot more lighting.
1: Yeah. yeah. For the, the finale with the robot and the trailer shows us, I won't go, we don't have to go too spoiler, but shooting, where skins off the full term, like the closest to a Terminator moment you get. Was that all just, was it just puppet? Was it like, how was that shooting that? Because it wasn't Terminator obviously goes pretty much full stop motion at that point. This one looks like a lot of like over the shoulder, you're faking it. I'm assuming it's just a torso up for a lot of that stuff. How challenging was it to pull that off versus, you know, it looking hokey. Cause I was waiting for it to fall apart and be like, okay, this is where it lost me or this, but it looks pretty solid. Even though you can imagine how it was put together, that whole scene, it sold me on it. Like that. This is okay. This is actually happening. How challenging was making that feel authentic versus feeling potentially hokey.
0: We destroyed that thing multiple times. Okay. It, got, it, it was real beat up.
1: It looked from just destroying stuff in the room or
0: we kept blowing it up every day yeah and then they would put it back together and then we'd blow it up again and we put it back together the russells did an amazing job it looks awesome and i was a little bit skeptical at the beginning Hmm. because i knew what they were doing and i saw some of it and i've known the russells as well i've known them for years yeah and i had no doubts about their ability but uh, Joe's very ambitious and he's wanted to have laser eyes. And I was like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with these laser eyes. Yeah. And then I, and so they're like, we'll put laser eyes in it. And uh, the moment those laser eyes turned on, everybody's, oh yeah, that was a good, that was the right call to put yeah.
1: laser eyes
0: the yeah. <laughs> Santa Claus, but then getting it to work right. So the eyes weren't like doing crisscrossing this, okay, the whole time. That was a thing. So we had several different eye rigs to make sure the eyes were straight, whether it was the POV. Or if we were seeing the Santa Claus point at something, it was really the Russells, the whole, not just the Russells, but everyone on their team worked a lot on that robot. Like it would literally, it would be soaking wet and exploded and melting. And we had sparks inside of it and smoke inside of it. And it would, at the end of the night, we would leave and you'd see it on the ground. Like it would just, people were just so over this robot. They just put it on the ground and it was just a pile of plastic and metal and lights. Yeah. And then they would carry it away to their truck. And the next day it would show back up and it would be a robot again. And we would do it all over again. So there were times that it looked rough. Yeah. But as soon as we had someone inside puppeting it, there was a couple, one dragon was our main guy, but a couple of other guys were helping. And it just, we would find the movement that worked best for the angle that we were doing. And we would just focus on that instead of trying to make it do a bunch of things. Just, I need it to do this. I yeah. need the head to turn and I need the shoulders to turn yeah. or something like that. And we would focus on what it
1: would, what it could be. Like do that to- one shot yeah. turn and then next shot here, we need this. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that section like it feels intentional, like each movement where it's okay, here's the shot, here's the shot of her. And then the, yeah, the laser eyes with that smoke in that room just looks so cool. I showed my mom, I showed my mom the trailer for it. And when the laser eyes came on, she like started busting up laughing. Cause she said, it's, it's such like an extreme next step. Like, you're like, how does this keep building and building? That's what, what I've seen the most, I've seen
0: other people watch it or I've yeah. seen reactions to people watching it. And it's like, <laughs> you're like, oh, it's a robot or mm-hmm. it's Santa Claus killing people. Oh no, it's a robot Santa Claus killing people. And then it cuts to the point in the trailer where he's laying there and then it just goes, yeah. And everybody is like cheering for yeah. these laser eyes. And it is, it's just over the top. You're like, oh, this thing is going to fuck some people up now.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Um, no, it's it. <laughs> I love that. It actually there's one shot that didn't make it into the movie, which is one of my favorite shots. And the problem was the sun was coming up and mm-hmm. it just didn't really match. But it was the shot. It was in the one of the original cuts. And it is the moment where I'm like, oh, this thing works. Because before that, I was like, I'm still curious to see how, what shots are going to use, how Josh is going to put it together and with sound effects and everything else, how do they bring this pile of plastic and metal to life? And there's a scene when he stands up and he's crossing the road to go to the record store and sound effects have been put in. And I was like, Oh, this thing actually looks like a really pissed off robot. Now it like it had personality and it had weight. That was the big thing is like, when you see it, yeah, in person, it's just a bunch of pieces, and it is it is physically heavy, but it doesn't have the weight of, like,
1: the guy you're seeing a, for the first yeah. three-fourths of the movie, yeah.
0: Right, but when the thing stood up and started walking with the sound effects and everything, I was like, oh, this thing sounds and looks like it weighs a couple hundred pounds, and it's just going to demolish everything in its way. And that's when I felt really confident about whatever came after that.
1: No, yeah. What moment would you say you're most proud of in the overall finished project? What's the scene you look at, whether because it was the most challenging and you pulled it off or just because it's the coolest moment? Like, what's your favorite moment in the film?
0: I don't know. There's so many of them. I really love the night exterior. Oh, actually, I can think of them. There's a couple there's a couple that are my favorite from performance, just because I get mm. giddy every time I see them. But there's this <laughs> there's a scene where they're trying to get away, and they run their car into another car, and then Benny Barnes, who's the neighbor, who is played by Joe, comes mm. out and screaming at them. He's like, "You just fucked up my El Camino or Ranchero," <laughs> and uh, and he gets split in half and thrown through the window so they freak out so they start backing up trying to get away from the robot and they rear they run into a tree and we had talked about that setup a lot and in the, on the script it was oriented slightly different but like i said it because of the hill that the houses were on it just changed the blocking mm-hmm. it also made it a little bit more brutal because instead of just backing on a on the flat like suburban road he's backing right. down a driveway yeah. slope that's a dirt road that's covered in snow and stuff into a tree so everything just felt bigger and more dangerous, I guess. And yeah. also comedic because you're just watching this body just flop. Yeah. I
1: flop. love that shot mounted on the hood where you just see the body sticking out of the windshield. It's a yeah, good I, good moment.
0: <laughs> I love that part, but I also like the look of our exteriors at that house. Those guys, the grip and electric department and special effects are killing themselves running up and down the hill. Like The tube of death is light and small, but you still have to Go up to it and drag it around. If it's in the shot, you got to move it to hide it again, and then you got to make sure. Typically, on if you had more resources, you would just take a whole set and wrap it in this stuff. So, whichever the way the wind's blowing, it's still blowing into set. We couldn't really do that. We just were short on crew and stuff a lot. So we had one and we just were always, when we would hit roll, I was like, please win. Just turn around. I just need you to come this way. So it pushes it over the truck instead of away from the truck. Yeah. Um, but I really like that scene. I really love the interior fire gags that we did for the police station. It yeah. goes out and she's, and Tori is going through the desk and hiding the explosion. When also when the, when the ambulance comes around and hits that cop car. Yeah. I remember this being another conversation because the special effects guy was like, when a car hits another car, they don't typically rip in half. He's like, you really want to rip in half? And Joe's was like, yeah, definitely. It's good. It's they gotta they do in
1: the movies. <laughs>
0: That's what, it's got to rip in half. And, and I was so stoked that he just leaned in. He was like, no, that thing's ripping in half. Yeah. And then when we showed it, when we did it and the car exploded and ripped in half and just went flying it's another it's like a moment where people are just cheering on set because it looks so good. Yeah, I mean it was visceral and ex- exactly. I Maybe mean, I don't. I'm not a car engineer, so I don't know. A car wouldn't do that, but yeah,
1: there's like movie science, right? There's things you expect, like if a car crashes, it's going to explode. Like we just expect those things. And again, like it's one of those moments, like seeing that car rip in half of the ambulance going through. Like watching trailer, you're going like, "What's the budget on this movie?" Because it adds so much production value to the overall. See, and that whole final scene, like, looks so good, like that setup and the way it sets up the lighting for all of the rest of the movie is really neat. But yeah, that's a, that's another big moment that like, if you watch the trailer, and you see that and you're not sold, then <laughs> it's not the movie for you.
0: I think my one, the one other thing that I just thought of is, which is a, not an explosion or anything too bombastic, but it's the sex scene, and Tori and Sam, but they're in the room and... I love the lighting in that room. Mm. I I think it's a sensual scene, but it's also, it reminds me of like body heat or Mm. like an early Brian De Palma, like something that feels gritty. It's like in a way, but it also is amazing to look at too. And I say that because it was a very, it's just me and Joe in the room to do that. They wanted to keep it as small as possible. So it was just he and I, and we were over cranking it. And it's cutting between this and the kid next door. And then we started doing these blind effects, which blind effects can be very hokey sometimes. I think that in this case, we use them to sell this moment that they were having with the Christmas lights coming through. I just, I, when it ramps up into that, I just, despite the content, I just think it's they're really beautiful images. Yeah. And the editing
1: through that is sells it like it it works.
0: yeah. So there's just there's a lot. I'm really proud of the movie that we made and I'm happy with a lot of the things that we were we got to do and working with people who were ex- experimental and what they wanted to try and try to get to.
1: Right. Love it. Definitely if you're listening to this, definitely check out Christmas, Bloody Christmas. It delivers on its promise. That's the thing I can say about us. Killer Robot Santa. You get a good hour and a half of that and it looks phenomenal. It's really great. I know we're near the end of our time here in just a few minutes. I want to move us into our rapid round. I want to ask you the same questions I ask everybody that comes on the show and get to know your answers for these. First and foremost, what do you think is the best decade of film history?
0: I feel like I go back to early 80s a lot Mm -hmm. but i also i really love the early universal and also not just universal but the val luton horror films late 70s there's so many and they all have they're all are special in some way or another but i guess i do go probably to the early 80s the most i was a kid when those movies were coming out Yeah. so the thing is a big deal for me um altered states is a big one Mm -hmm. for me blue velvet i guess actually i don't remember what year blue velvet was i guess a little bit after that but I think that those are the ones that really caught my interest, which so they pulled a, a special place. But I love movies, so all eras I can find something that I probably want to watch.
1: Yeah. Following on the back of that question, if you were given the green light to remake any film, what would you choose and why? Oh. Huh.
0: What would I pick? I don't know. I feel like there's not many that I want to be remade, but there's, mm. I, th- I was just <laughs> talking to someone. There's a handful that I think never really got their due because of the limitations of the era they were mm. made. I mean, I'm, I'm stumped. I can't <laughs> think of what I'd want to remake. Maybe one of the early Valute movies, like I walk with mm. the Zombie or something like that. I think there's a lot of stuff from that era where the themes come through and they're beautifully shot, but the limitations you can
1: see. Those have been largely untouched by remakes, huh? That's, yeah, I, I haven't exactly. thought about that. Yeah.
0: Leopard Man, Cat People I think is really the only one that that I know of. Maybe other people have done other ones, but Cat People's the only one I know
1: of. Yeah, yeah. That's inter- yeah, it's interesting. I haven't It seems like they're all ripe for it. Where like it's surely enough times passed considering so we remake movies 5 years later. It's interesting that those haven't been What is a film that people would be surprised to know that you enjoy? Any any favorite rom-coms that, that come to mind?
0: I, don't know if it's rom- I can't think of rom-coms. I like. I really like the movie Real Genius. I don't really watch it. I don't watch a lot of comedies, but I guess I do like comedies that are from that era. Well, it's yeah. 80s. Real Genius is good. Weird Science, stuff like that. I have a soft spot for the Christmas movie, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which was a Henson movie. Oh, yeah. we. I just it, watched
1: has, that with my daughter last year.
0: Yeah, it has the River bottom Nightmare Band in it. I think that's what I, that's, I think that's what caught my attention when I watched it as a kid can't think of any other, like
1: any ones that are too weird. Is there a certain genre that you'd like to play in that you haven't already? Is there anything that you've, that you haven't been able to shoot or a certain style of project that you'd be interested to test out shooting in that visual language?
0: Yeah, there's quite a few. I've done a lot of kind of mostly horror, horror related Mm -hmm. films. Which I like. I like horror, so I don't mind doing that. But I really like um, murder mystery, like Agatha Christie sort of stuff. I was obsessed with Knives Out when it came out. Yeah. And I was very apprehensive at first. I was like, I don't know if this is going to be what I want it to be. And I thought it was great. I also really love more just strictly straightforward art house sort of stuff, like the movie Amir, which mm-hmm. I guess has horror elements to it. And Let uh, the Corpses Tan. Those filmmakers always butcher their names, but uh, Helen Catet, I think, or something like that, and Bruno. F- I can't. I'm always I always set their names, but those. I love their films, and I think that their films are narrative, but they're really experimental and textural and and I would like to do more of that. I think a lot of the stuff I've worked out, worked in the past. In the past has been with stories that are very a little more straightforward even yeah. though maybe the process is experimental or we're figuring it out or trying new things, they're still really rooted in narrative story. And it'd be nice to work with a director who doesn't care about that at all. Like, right. But most people don't want to make black and white movies about nothing. So
1: yeah, that's true. A24 does a couple every year. But yeah. yeah. Which of your projects personally do you think is the best representation of you as a creator?
0: I think that this is the closest one. I've gotten to do things that I want to do. The last couple of films that I did with Jaren had serious limitations on the levels, but there yeah. there were successful things that we did too. I really like Jaren a lot as a person and a filmmaker. It was fun making them, but I don't know that we always got to go where we wanted to go sometimes. Yeah. So I would say probably Christmas, like Christmas is the closest I've gotten to get to doing things that I want to do the way that I'd want to do
1: them. Gotcha. And last question, I ask everybody that comes on the show, what is the best piece of advice you would give to an aspiring filmmaker who is listening to this?
0: Uh, I guess I'd just start doing the thing you think you want to do and then you'll get there. Eventually, I just think the long way around is thinking that you need someone to tell you that you're good enough or that you've made it to have made it if you want to be a director then today you are you're now you're a director so you got to go make movies if you want to be a costume designer when you get up today, date you start designing costumes and finding stories that find people who are telling stories that are the type of stories you want to tell too and start trying to let people get people to make let you make the things that you want to make yeah. i just I think that I suffer and a lot of other people have suffered from the idea that you need to wait for someone to tell you that you've made it so you can start doing the job you always wanted to do. I now think that is really the wrong way to, to get there. Just, Joe would tell you the same thing. Joe's a director, never went to film school, just wanted to make movies. And he is a director, a writer, director, and that's because yeah. he didn't need permission to be that thing.
1: Yeah. I want to ask you one bonus question on the back of that, because that's something you'll hear a lot of people say, if you want to shoot, just shoot. If you want to be a director and then I think as far as the motivation to go shoot is great as far as knowing, because nobody starts good, right? Like everybody you start and the thing you make isn't good. Maybe like your family tells you it's good, or maybe you have a couple of friends that'll say it's good. If you're not looking for the approval of other people to do the thing you want to do, that's a good thing. How do you choose which voices to let in when it comes to critiquing your work or giving you that that constructive feedback, like how do you know what voices to let in as you're moving forward versus that internal knowing or knowing I've got this or I'm figuring this out?
0: I think it's just, I think it's fine to take criticism from anybody who wants to give it to you. I think it's pretty easy to see who you gel with and who you don't, who understands the work that you're trying to make. Because for people that have, that are, that it's constructive and they're trying to help you do better than what you're doing, you might not agree with them, but it's a voice and you can take it into consideration. And then you keep the things that are helping and then you get rid of the things that are not. You just you never know. And I've seen this with sitting in on test screenings and stuff like where you before a movie is actually done, not necessarily like the Hollywood test screening with a bunch of people you don't know that give you notes. I'm sure there is valuable things that comes from that, too. But just watching and looking at things with your peers, people will see things that you're too close to it to have seen. And you'll go, oh, I've been looking at this thing for a month. I don't know why I never saw that before. Or I never saw that relationship because I was so focused on this other relationship before. So I think it's really just surrounding people, getting people that are your peers, listening to what they have to say. Um, And knowing that you don't have to take all of it if you don't want to take what you like, throw the rest away. And then maybe on your next project, you realize that you made a huge mistake and you should have listened to them. And then now you get a chance to listen to them. We were talking about photography earlier. And one of the things that I took away from that that I think a lot of people don't think about is not every single frame is going to be perfect. When a photographer goes out and shoots all day long, maybe one frame out of 100 is one that he And that will be the photo that you see and you go, oh, he made this amazing photo, all of his photos must be good. And it's not, that's not the case. There's just tons of garbage that lands on the ground that you never see because it didn't work for one reason or another. And I think that's the same thing with cinematography and movie. There's like multiple takes that don't work. There's bad performances. There's scenes that just don't fit into the flow of the film anymore. So you got to remove them and not be overly precious about something. And it's the same thing with design or whatever you want to do you're going to do a lot of bad ones before you do a good one not every time the pen hits the page is something that'd be gold so i think it's being okay with just throwing things away and not being precious with something over so precious with something that you force a bad idea into being
1: there (laughs) yeah no i really appreciate that i want to get your perspective on it but thanks so much for taking the time to do this and for all your work. I always like getting a chance to thank people at the end for just making movies because it's something that I enjoy. I enjoy seeing different approaches and different projects coming together. Um, And I know this one definitely was one that I really enjoyed. So thanks for your work. I look forward to seeing what you do soon. And thanks for taking the time to to talk to me and my audience today. I appreciate it. Thanks for
0: listening to the film school podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe. So you won't miss a single episode.